Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the country enters its second day of vaccine rollout, but there are still some who are hesitant about this. Dr. Reed Aria has some things to say about vaccine hesitancy in Ontario's long-term care homes. The government confirmed that the coronavirus manufacturers are protected from liability when it comes to issues with their doses. What exactly does that mean? And what are the security risks during Canada's COVID-19 vaccination inoculation? Spoiler alert, lots of them. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's get right down to it and talk about day two of vaccines here in Canada. More Canadians are going to receive the vaccine for COVID-19 later today as the country enters its second day. Uh, it marks the largest immunization campaign in the country's history. And as Global's Eric Sorensen reports, the vaccines are going to healthcare workers, personal support workers, and long-term care residents. Frontline workers at a long-term care facility in Toronto have received among the country's first COVID-19 vaccines. Cecile Lasco called it an important day. I'm so grateful to be the first personal support worker to take this vaccine. We have been waiting for this for so long. And I'm... I'm here now and I'm so thankful. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is the first of several that Canada has contracts to receive. The first batch is being distributed to 14 centres in all 10 provinces. Epidemiologist Raywat Dianandan says no shortcuts have been taken to compromise safety of the vaccine. The speed is the result of a singular focus of the entirety of civilization on one problem. And when money is no object magical things can happen. 30,000 doses are arriving this week, with more coming by the end of December. Just the beginning of a months-long process to bring the pandemic to an end in this country. Eric Sorensen, Global News, Toronto. Uh, lots of questions about uh, just how effective this is going to be, and, and even some questions about the rollout and who actually is going to be standing in line. Uh, we also need to address something that we've talked about on the program before called vaccine hesitancy, especially in Ontario's long-term care facilities. Joining us to talk about this, uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Amit Arya, who is a palliative care physician specializing in long-term care. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us again. Yeah, thanks. Good morning, Bill. Well, one day into the uh, into the books right now, are you pleased with how it rolled out on, on day one? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think it's a great moment of, of courage and hope for us, you know, in Ontario and especially across the country, given all that's happened, uh, you know, through the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's talk specifically about what's going on in long-term care facilities. I've been following you on Twitter, and uh, you've been uh, very active about some of the questions that are being raised right now that I think need to be addressed about how this is going to roll out. Uh, and and the, the timing couldn't be better on this, obviously, because you and I have talked about in the past, there's a great mm-hmm. deal of concern about what's going on in long-term care facilities. And uh, I, I don't want people to get the false impression that, well, the vaccine's here, so everything's going to be fine. Uh, there's uh, a lot of things that need to be addressed, aren't there? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, yesterday we saw the vaccine, you know, being given to, you know, PSWs in long-term care. And while that's an amazing moment, I mean, we can't just thank them by giving them, you know, like the vaccine. We have to ask ourselves, I mean, why haven't they still received that $3 pandemic pay? Why are they still struggling to pay their rent and visiting food banks? Why do we have such a big staffing shortage in in our long-term care facilities? I mean, these are all issues that still need to be solved in long-term care. Let's talk about the vaccinations as well. And you made some very valid points with some of your tweets earlier, Doctor, uh, about who should get vaccinated. And, 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 and some people are going to be saying, well, do the staff really need to be front in line? And, and obviously, according to your statements, yes, they do. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we know um, at this point in the pandemic, nine months in, that how the virus gets into um, long-term care facilities is through well-meaning pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic staff. So any way that we can protect the staff, we can protect the residents. So I would also like to add one other point here is that when staff become ill, that actually needs to lead to, you know, like the horrific stories of neglect and abandonment, because we know that there's a staffing shortage and there simply aren't, uh, you know, enough people to look after these vulnerable seniors. So any way we can protect the staff, we will protect the residents. Let's, let's talk about those numbers, because that's going to be somewhat problematic as well. Uh, there was a story out yesterday uh, that, that indicated that the, the size of the pandemic or the, the ferocity of the pandemic basically depends on the size of the LTC facility itself. Yeah, I mean, you know, several of, you know, of the factors that have come through at this point that we know very well, which um, increase the risk of uh, spread with when the virus enters the home are things such as overcrowding. So we know that many older, uh, you know, facilities, which uh, most of them are actually for-profit long-term care facilities, tend to have rooms with uh, three or four seniors, you know, living together. And obviously that's not very good for privacy and autonomy that most of our seniors have wanted, but then it accelerates the spread of the virus. I mean, these for-profit long-term care homes, uh, you know, generate money and profits for their shareholders by paying their health workers less. And what that means is that they're less likely to have full-time staff, they're more likely to have part-time casual staff and agency workers still moving between homes. And then one big issue that is really something that I've been thinking about, uh, you know, when it comes to vaccinating the long-term care staff, I mean, we know that the vaccine prevents symptomatic confirmed COVID-19 disease, but you could still carry the virus and not have symptoms and transmit it to someone else, as far as we know at this time. And that means that we need to still make sure that we have oversight and accountability for infection control in long-term care homes. Why the, the wide variety of, uh, in numbers here, if the, the percentage of staff that actually get vaccinated, doctor? I know it varies from facility to facility. And, and we're actually comparing, I guess, influenza vaccines, because there's only been day one of the COVID vaccine. Uh, but are we getting back to this topic that you brought about, about vaccine hesitancy? People don't want to get there. They're a little nervous about this. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And we have to ask ourselves, I mean, why don't we have really appropriate public messaging at this time, right? When we think about public health, uh, Bill, you know, we've, we've all seen, you know, perhaps growing up campaigns about seatbelts or, you know, getting, you know, other vaccines like childhood immunizations or, you know, condoms, like a wide variety of things to get people healthy and keep them healthy. So at this critical point in the pandemic, we need that messaging for, for long-term care staff, residents and family caregivers. I mean, specifically for the staff, there needs to be sort of public health messaging which is culturally safe and perhaps led by frontline health workers and unions unions themselves you know led by the people and for the people and the context here is that you know the long-term care staff have been really left very vulnerable during the pandemic they have a risk of infection and they work in some of the most dangerous jobs during COVID-19 and they have a risk of even speaking out so they're angry and fearful and they're feeling sacrificed so we need to reach out to these people at this time to make sure that there's greater uptake of the vaccine. The overwhelming percentage of, of the people in these facilities, Doctor, I'm, I'm talking about the frontline staff, of course, are, are women, uh, many women of yeah. color, in fact. And, and uh, yeah. as, as you mentioned in one of your tweets, uh, historically from communities that have a mistrust of health care to begin with. How do, how do you break through that barrier? Yeah, so once again, it comes to having an approach which is 
sort of led by the people and for the people, right? Rather than sort of talking down to people and telling them about this vaccine. I mean, just imagine if we had sort of, you know, uh, you know, a social media sort of campaign or a union-led campaign which reached out to all of their members where we actually had these front frontline long-term care staff speaking about the vaccine, you know, town halls to, you know, answer questions, uh, to make sure that everyone was, you know, buying in to why this vaccine was important. Um, and also language appropriate resources that are culturally safe uh, so that people would understand what's going on and feel feel safe and secure with taking this very important um, you know vaccination at this time. What about the families of the staff? Uh, I, I understand you know asymptomatic and, and, and pre-symptomatic conditions can exist here uh, but at the end of the shift I mean they're going home to their families and and, and you know the they could be passing it on. There's the possibility of the families themselves, too. I mean, where do we draw the line here? I mean, I, I can understand there's, there's obviously a link between that, and the families yeah. and, and the workers themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like this also comes in the context, uh, Bill, where we don't have paid sick leave uh, at this time, which is something that should be appalling, right? I mean, that's for the safety of the residents. It's for the safety of the staff and for the safety of their families, as you bring up. I mean, many of these, um, you know, uh, women of color, uh, you know, actually take public transit, which is still very crowded, and they may pass on the virus to other essential workers who, you know, are the people who are putting the food on our, you know, like on our table or making sure our grocery stores still remain well stocked. And when they come home, they may be looking after, you know, elderly parents or elderly seniors as well, who may be at high risk of complications from COVID-19 or even death. So, I mean, we need to prioritize, uh, you know, long-term care staff, but also, um, you know, essential workers in general and their families. That's one of the heartbreaking stories that uh, that I know that we heard during the independent review of what was going on in long-term care facilities. This was back in the summertime. Uh, one staff member who basically said that, we know that if we're not feeling well, if we're showing some symptoms, we're not supposed to go to work. But she said, if I don't go to work, I don't get paid. How am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to pay the hydro bill? How am I going to feed my kids? Uh, they're, they're very conflicted right now. Yeah, I mean, I mean, absolutely. And that's the reason that at this point, I mean, in the second wave, what we're hearing is that we're actually 33% uh, short of PSWs as compared to before the pandemic. And that was already with a pre-existing shortage. So this is really, I mean, a crisis within a crisis bill. I mean, what's happened um, with staffing um, and, you know, the really the shortages is really what's led to the abandonment and neglect of the residents where we've heard these real stories. And I've seen this from my own eyes that there just simply weren't enough staff to feed residents or make sure that they were given water. And of course, this has accelerated the spread of the virus. So this is something that we have to address right away. Is there a... a, a, a coordinated program that's going on for the vaccination of these workers doctor or is this just being done piecemeal and you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation of course the like the character of the uh, of the institutions themselves many of them are are are, are pu- privately run of course and there are some yeah. that are owned uh, by municipalities uh is is there a protocol that they're all supposed to follow i mean i would envision and maybe the more effective way to do this is just have everybody on staff line up you know at 10 o'clock this morning roll up your sleeve and get your vaccination are they are they doing that or is this simply on okay we're going to be here if anybody wants one yeah so i mean at this point because i work in the peel region i'm not aware of all the specific details but i can tell you some of the logistical challenges uh, you know for this to work properly i mean one specific challenge is related to the pfizer vaccine which we've just started to you know see roll out in canada i mean this vaccine needs to be stored at minus minus 70 degrees celsius in a special freezer and these special freezers are really not found in rural hospitals and definitely not in nursing homes they're usually found in research labs and sort of bigger city hospitals 
So this is a problem where we have to have long-term care staff actually taking time off, going into the hospital to get a vaccine. And then unlike the influenza vaccine, where you just need one shot, you actually need a booster shot 21 days later. So I'm, I'm sure part of this is related to sort of this huge logistical challenge of how to get all these people vaccinated. And the other point is, I mean, staff is only one part, but of course, we have to vaccinate the residents, right, to prevent them from getting the actual disease, which we're so scared about. And how how do you make those evaluations? There are people at di- different levels of care in these facilities, depending on their 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 their, their situation. Uh, some are palliative, some are are, are yeah. They, you know, there could be any number of different things. Uh, uh, some could be you know very close to the end. And I, is there a determination made about who goes first? Yeah. So I mean, I think the first part of that for me, as a physician who works frontline in these long-term care facilities, revolves around the informed consent process. And what that simply means is that people deserve to know what they're getting into, regardless of the medical intervention. And here we're talking about the vaccine. Um, For most long-term care residents, I mean, 70% of these people have dementia. This will often involve a conversation not with the resident, but rather with their substitute decision maker, usually a family member. Mm -hmm. And um, firstly, we have to tell them, well, the vaccine has not been studied in, you know, this population. We've looked at it in seniors, but not in very ill seniors that that are the people living in long-term care homes. Um, So that's one issue. We have to talk about side effects, although from what we know, I mean, the Pfizer study specifically showed that seniors actually have less of a chance of getting side effects. And these are very limited side effects, usually, right? Fever, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe pain at the injection site and fatigue. And exactly as you've alluded to, Bill, I mean, um, you know, because long term care homes are people's last move and the median prognosis is 18 months. There may be a subset of people who are maybe in their last weeks or days where we would make a judgment call and say, well, we don't want that person to get a fever now or get some of these side effects, even if it's a low chance. And we're not going to poke them at that point in time and make sure that they're as comfortable and peaceful as possible. That's a surprising statistic you mentioned, though, Doctor, because I I think by definition, the people in these facilities uh, usually have lower immune systems simply because of the physical conditioning right now. Uh, And you'd think that any side effects would actually, you know, be be more uh, problematic. But uh, the stats don't seem to bear that out. Well, the honest answer to that, I mean, once again, in the in the trials, they haven't looked at this population. So the honest answer is that we really don't know. Right. It might be that, um, you know, the side effects are different as well. I mean, we've seen that with the COVID-19 virus, right, where we think of fever and we think of cough and shortness of breath. But in long term care, we might not just see those symptoms with the virus, but we could see, you know, delirium and sort of not eating or drinking and, you know, different symptoms altogether. And similarly for the, for, you know, for the vaccine, we may see something completely different. And that speaks also, you know, to how we have to have what we call in medical speak, pharmacovigilance, which means that when this sort of vaccine rolls out, we need to be monitoring and probably need to have some type of data, you know, database, whether it's provincial or national, to be tracking the side effects uh, in this population. I mean, I wanted to reiterate that I really think the vaccine is going to be safe for almost all people in long-term care who live there. And it's probably necessary because we always have to weigh this against the risk of actually getting the virus itself, which is obviously, you know, it goes without saying is deadly in this population. I got about a minute left, but I have to get a comment on a story that uh, that we're following this morning here, doctor, and it's uh, from mm-hmm. Hamilton, Lime Ridge Mall in Hamilton. Uh, CF Lime Ridge Mall here is extending its hours from Tuesday until the end of the year in anticipation of visitors from lockdown zones in the GTA coming to the Hamilton Mall for holiday shopping. Uh, and, and clearly these extended hours are to accommodate those people that are uh, what they call zone hopping. Uh, that seems rather contrary to the uh, parameters that we're supposed to be following. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, as someone who's worked in these long-term care facilities once again, and especially in long-term care facilities where there's been large COVID-19 outbreaks, I mean, I've seen people die from this virus with my own eyes and been the first to call their families. I mean, I want all the listeners to know, I mean, I know everyone's tired. It's 10 days left to Christmas, and it's, it's such an important time at this time in the holidays where we spend time with our families and our loved ones. But, I mean, seniors in long-term care don't live on a separate island. They're not protected from the virus. And the biggest risk factor is community spread, meaning the the number of cases that we have in the community actually leads to these outbreaks directly. So I ask everyone, I mean, unless you're an essential worker, we need to stay home. I mean, maybe this is the year to do a Zoom Christmas, order online, buy gift baskets and leave them at the door and follow all the public health measures. I mean, these people in long-term care homes have given to us all their life and built the very society that we cherish. And we're in this sort of, Point where we have the vaccine rolling out, and now it's time for us to give back to them. As always, Doctor, thanks so much for your insight into this. I really appreciate the time today. Yeah, thanks so much, Bill. Take care. Stay well. Dr. Yeah, Rita Rhea, of course, palliative care physician specializing in long-term care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Carrying along with the theme about vaccine hesitancy, there seems to be an awful lot of concern about uh, not just the efficacy of the vaccine, but the safety of the vaccine, notwithstanding the fact that uh, the Pfizer vaccine, which is the one that's available as of now anyway, has gone through all the proper testing and uh, got the thumbs up from just about every element of this. And uh, there are still some people that are kind of worried about this. And uh, I think that worry is probably exacerbated uh, by an online petition that's going on right now asking about uh, why is it uh, that uh, the Pfizer people in this particular case and others who are going to be developing vaccines uh, will be immune from any prosecution if, in fact, people want to bring class actions against them. Hopefully that would never have to happen. Uh, Minister of Public Services and uh, Procurement Anita Anand says that she has full confidence in Health Canada's COVID-19 vaccine approval process. As we see vaccines rolling out in this country, um, we are confronted with a number of different types of reactions to the vaccine. But I want to start by saying that I have full confidence in Health Canada and the expertise that they bring to the table in terms of the approval of the Pfizer vaccine and additional vaccines that will hopefully be approved. So with that in mind, a lot of people are asking, uh, well, you know, if the vaccine is safe, then why are uh, the vaccine makers being shielded from liability? well, to join us in the conversation here, please welcome back to the program, Rachel Gilmore. Rachel is a national online journalist with Global News who's done an awful lot of research into this. Rachel, thank you for the time. Glad you could be with us again today. Yeah, thanks for having me. What, what have you found out about this? Because I know that I, I don't know if the minister actually got caught off guard with this. She had to expect that somebody was going to ask this question about liability and, and, and the fact that uh, they, they seem to get a pass on this. Uh, should we be worried about that? What, what were the minister's comments? So the minister's comments were really, really clear, really unequivocal that we should not be concerned about that. And uh, one thing that I would say just from my own research is that this is, you know, she said it's totally normal to um, have these kinds of uh, sort of exemptions for vaccine manufacturers. And that's something that bore out when I uh, was looking into it as well. The government has had a, a vaccine plan or a vaccine um, sort of proposal in case of an event like this 
um, laid out on its website since 2017. And one of the things that it says is that they would sort of provide what's called an indemnification clause to the uh, or an indemnity clause to the vaccine manufacturers. And basically that just kind of incentivizes them to go for it and to do the research to try to get this done so quickly because they aren't afraid of the, the possibility that, uh, you know, they could be sued, um, you know, and totally go bankrupt uh, for trying to do this work. But within that context, any vaccine still has to go through the same approval processes. So, you know, they don't let vaccines go into Canadians' shoulders (laughs) without ensuring that they're safe to be used in Canada. So there is kind of a safety net there. So it's incentivizing this rapid production that is allowing us to potentially get back to normal as soon as September next year. And it also is going through that safety, that rigorous review to make sure that we're not uh, having anything, you know, scary or untested uh, going into our bodies. They're really careful about that. I know, because one of the complaints I always hear is, well, I don't want to be first. And <laughs> you have to reassure people and say, you're actually about 50,000, okay? Because I mean, they've been doing testing on this stuff for the, the last God knows how many, well, nine months anyway. Uh, and other people have already had the vaccine. And, and you know, I guess uh, the, that information is available as to, you know, what if any side effects were there. Uh, so, you know, that 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 is a bit of a, a, a a phony excuse for something like this. But the other element to this is, well, what if you have something like this? And I can understand Pfizer's concern here, Rachel. I mean, you know, if somebody has a, a, a bad reaction to it, and that could be for any number of different reasons and decides to sue them, they're going to think twice about even presenting a vaccine and figure, you know, as you say, we don't want to go bankrupt. We need some cover here. Yeah. And, you know, there there are certain recommendations in place to to try to mitigate, you know, even those unlikely, exceedingly rare scenarios that anyone does have an adverse reaction. So, you know, Health Canada is saying that if you have um, allergies to any of the ingredients in the vaccine, which are publicly available on the Health Canada website, they're telling you don't take this vaccine. Um, so, you know, there's steps that you can take to try to protect yourself from the extremely unlikely event that if you are you know, allergic to any of the ingredients, anything like that, um, that that you won't have a bad reaction. I mean, we did see two allergic reactions in the UK, but those were two individuals that had a history of severe allergic reactions to other things. And both of them, as I understand it, had EpiPens on their person. Um, so, and that's something that Health Canada was really seized by as well and is keeping an eye on. So they're watching all of that stuff really closely. But, you know, the thing that they found in the clinical trial is the most common side effect was just a little bit of pain at this site of injection, which I think anyone who's mm-hmm. gotten a flu shot before can tell you is pretty standard. Yeah, yeah, I had mine about a week or a half or so ago, and it's still a little tender. No, I'm not yeah. It hurts, it hurts <laughs> it for like really a day. It really lifts up your arm fully. Yeah, you know? it, it's a big deal. But but other than that, it, it, as you say, I've talked to a, a number of folks that have already uh, gone through the process with the flu vaccine, and a lot of folks that were interviewed over the last 24 hours uh, that did get the COVID vaccine, and everybody says it's just like the flu shot, They're, as far as, as the impact it has on the body. But I, I get that. There's another element to this, though, that I, uh, and when, when uh, Minister Renan talked about this and said this is standard procedure can we extrapolate from that answer then rachel that that every other country that signed on for this vaccine the the united states the uk and other places that are vaccinating right now have the same clause in their contracts yes she explicitly said that actually that canada is exactly in line with every other country around the world and that they um it's standard procedure to put this kind of a clause in one of these rapid vaccine uh contracts so 
you know, it, it's a pretty normal thing. It's um, something that Canada, you know, we're not an exception. We're not doing something crazy and putting our like Canadian citizens at risk. Um, it, Canada is totally in line with every other country around the world. And, you know, I mean, if you think about it just kind of logically, the, the whole purpose behind this vaccine is to keep Canadians safe from a public health threat. So they wouldn't exactly be jumping feet first into introducing a new public health threat by having some kind of an unsafe vaccine. So they're being really careful. They're going through all the proper channels. They're totally in line with the international community. And, you know, health officials have been really clear that Canadians should feel extremely safe getting this vaccine. And I got to say, I can't wait for my turn. <laughs> no, I'm in the same boat. I've got my sleeve rolled up and I'm just waiting for the phone call. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but I think people have to have a better understanding of, of exactly what procedures are taking place here. Uh, and, and maybe the most obvious one is uh, we did not start vaccinating people as soon as Pfizer said they had a vaccine. Uh, it was when Health Canada said it was safe, and Health Canada went through their rather rigorous protocol to ensure that. So, I mean, there is there is another step over and above all the research and all the, uh, the blind testing and everything that Pfizer did. Uh, then it goes to, well, the Food and Drug Administration in the States, and, of course, Health Canada up here, and they have their own series of tests, and, and, and it's Health Canada that said, yes, you can take the vaccine right now. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're part of this process as well. And, uh, you know, when you're asked to roll up your sleeve or you volunteer to roll up your sleeve for this vaccine, uh, it's with the knowledge that the, the people that are in charge of your public health, Health Canada, as you mentioned, uh, are the ones that say, yeah, this is safe. It's go ahead and go ahead and do this. It's going to be fine for you. It's not just Pfizer. It's, it's, it's an independent body. I mean, because there have been historically, and I know you found this in your research, uh, there are some companies that get turned down by Health Canada. Said, no, nope, it's not ready yet. You've got more work to do, or no, or we're concerned about this, this, or this. Uh, that didn't happen in this particular case, so that that should ease some people's minds, I would think. Absolutely, and something that the public health officials were really clear about as well is the fact that. Um, even though they did it really quickly, this still went through a fully standard vaccine approval process. So they didn't skip any steps. They didn't cut any corners. They just basically concentrated all their efforts on doing this as quickly as they could. So, it, you know, it, it's a totally normal process. It's This vaccine is being held to the same standard as any other vaccine that would be approved for use in Canada. So Canadians can feel pretty confident that this is, you know, a, a really safe, um, thing to use. Uh, while I've got you, I know in, in the piece that you filed for Global News, you also talked about, uh, well, I, I guess what's going to be the second vaccine that's going to be on the market, although they're not quite there yet, and that's Moderna. What are you hearing about that today? Yeah, so some really exciting stuff coming down the pipe on that front. Um, basically, Health Canada got the final clinical data for that on Friday, um, and uh, they're just waiting for the manufacturing data. But based on, they basically said that they spent the entire weekend just pouring over documents, tearing through those pages, and uh, that they're expecting that a decision will come down very soon on that. Just for, for reference here, um, you know, they're expecting the manufacturing data by the end of the week, and that's the last thing that they uh, need. When it came to Pfizer, once they had that manufacturing data and they had all of that in place, it only took them five days to approve the vaccine. So, you know, you can kind of extrapolate from that that if the Moderna vaccine gets all of its manufacturing data in place uh, and into Canada's, you know, 
um, ready to read eyes um, by Friday, let's say, then we would probably see an approval if there's going to be one happening next week. Uh, and that's really exciting because, you know, uh, that puts us on track. I was actually texting with the procurement minister's office this morning to try to get a handle on this. And as I understand it, you know, the timeline that they've laid out is based on the um, existing contracts that Canada has. So if this approval goes through, it puts us on track for that exciting timeline that we're seeing where, you know, the general population is going to start being immunized in April and all of Canada could potentially be, um, you know, if they choose to use the vaccine because it is voluntary, um, could be immunized by the end of September next year. And, you know, you could be back to hugging your loved ones, back to going to concerts, going dancing. I mean, I don't want to go too crazy here because we'll have to see what happens. But I think a lot of people are getting excited imagining the next steps and, uh, you know, feeling a bit of hope. Well, and and I also understand that the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is in the hopper. It's it's nowhere near as, as uh, you know the top as Moderna is right now, uh, but it's it's interesting to to look at time frames here because I know that uh, the government uh, took a lot of heat. You know, well, we're not going to get vaccinated until you know later in the year, and everybody else is going to be vaccinated by you know by Valentine's Day. That's not the case at all. I mean, if you look at the rollout for the United States, uh, which we seem to hold up as the gold standard for you know they got their vaccines and they're doing it. Uh, they're doing it in the same fashion. I mean, th- there's a priority list with uh, frontline healthcare workers, etc. And uh, Dr. Fauci mentioned the other day when he was on uh, NBC that uh, he said it's, it's probably going to be April, May, June before the, the, the vaccine is going to be available to the general public in mass dosages like this. So they, they're pretty much along the same time frame that we are, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the reality is, is that every country in the world wants this vaccine. And frankly, you know, when it comes to a global pandemic, you want every country in the world to have access to this vaccine, because if you want to be able to travel, if you want to be able to kind of reopen the world, every country needs to be able to access it. And, um, you know, the U.S. has their own um contracts signed with Pfizer and the various companies and but you know something that was pretty widely reported in uh, the New York Times did a deep dive on this a little while ago is that you know the U.S. actually had the opportunity to sign a contract for uh, more uh, more doses of the Pfizer vaccine um, before the approval was you know, uh, looking super good. And they they didn't actually take them up on that. So the U.S. is actually coming under some fire in their own country for, you know, what they could have done differently. And so I think every country is having this discussion. But at the end of the day, I think that next year, you know, it's it's kind of going to be a photo finish between all these different countries. And then there's sort of the other factor that Canada actually made an announcement yesterday of trying to ensure that these countries that, you know, aren't as wealthy and uh, don't have the same kind of access as countries like Canada and the U.S. are also able to access the vaccine because we don't want to see a situation where this disease is still rearing its ugly head in, you know, parts of the world because there wasn't sort of this um, equitable push for vaccine access. So it's, it's a really complicated issue, but I think that Canadians should feel pretty good about the fact that, you know, we're not going to be, you know, sitting here under lockdown as, you know, Americans are going clubbing. <laughs> I think that it's all going to no. be pretty, pretty much on the same timeline. Well, we saw that. I mean, we have to learn from history, right? And we saw that with SARS. I mean, you know, when we heard about SARS, oh, that's terrible. Well, that's something that's happening over in the other part of the world. It's not going to happen here in, in Ontario. Uh, all it took was one person to get off a plane at Pearson Airport and bingo, it was it was it was a problem for us too. 
and, and it can turn that quickly. So I, I understand that. And Canada is not the only country, but I'm glad they were one of the first to, to make sure that some of these uh, remote countries uh, that, that may have some financial strains and, and pressures right now are going to be able to buy this vaccine. Because it's only going to work if everybody is vaccinated. If there's one area of the world or a couple of countries uh, where this is still ravaging the population, it's still a global problem. Exactly. And something really important to keep in mind is that while this vaccine is approved, it's not going to be approved for everybody to be able to use it. Right now, there isn't enough clinical data data for those under the age of 16. Um, you know, so right now, the Pfizer vaccine isn't approved for Canadians under the age of 16. There's also going to be people, you know, every year there's some people who can't take the flu um, vaccination, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's important to try to have as widespread of an effort to vaccinate as possible in any sort of um, situation where there's a disease spreading that we have a vaccination for because there's always going to be a chunk of the population that while they would like to get vaccinated isn't actually able to due to health and safety concerns you know that are very personal to them so um in light of that it's really important that everyone around the world there's sort of this global push to kind of stamp out this this virus and uh and that's why it's so important that every country is involved in that well, and, and that's why we're so, I, I guess, uh, anxious about the, the the Moderna story, too. And it's the, such great news that you've been reporting on with this, Rachel, because uh, for those persons, uh, for instance, dude who have allergies and their doctor said, you know, you better not take the Pfizer vaccine just to be on the safe side. Uh, the, the hope, I guess, is that, you know, when the Moderna vaccine comes out, so, oh, you know what, that one is safe for you. So you can go ahead and do that. And there, there, there are going to be options here for people that are going to have some some challenges, I guess. And, and that's why the faster we can get these things uh, up and running and, and, and then get them over to Health Canada so they can do their assessment on that, the better off we're going to be. Uh, because, I, you know, the message that we got earlier this week from people with allergies or with pre-existing conditions that could be negatively impacted is you're never going to get the virus. That was never the message at all. It's just, no, not this one, uh, you know, not this vaccine. There will be another one down the pipe. Sounds like sooner than later now, and that may actually be the answer for them. Yeah, and exactly. And that's what's so exciting about seeing these new approvals, because every vaccine has its own sort of um, its own little personality. <laughs> They've got mm-hmm. their own benefits, their own, uh, you know, pros and cons in terms of their ability to reach different Canadians. Like the Pfizer vaccine has to be held in really cold conditions. It has to be in an ultra cold freezer, minus 70, which makes it really hard to get it to really remote areas. Whereas the Moderna vaccine um, doesn't have those same sorts of ultra cold requirements, which makes it much easier to ship, which means that people living in remote areas will be able to access the Moderna vaccine more easily. So, you know, that's an exciting thing because it takes a bit of the storage um, question and all of these logistical um, issues out of the equation to a certain extent. So every single vaccine that comes down the pipe is going to bring with it, you know, um, more possibilities, more options and more flexibility for Canadians to be able to access. So I think that every single milestone we hear is really good news when it comes to the vaccine, uh, the vaccine uh, push. So well, and, we'll and, and, yeah, we don't know what's going to be down the pipe here either. I mean, you know, we've talked about Moderna, which is, seems to be next uh, Johnson and Johnson, but there are many, many others that are developing vaccines, and we just don't know where uh, the next bit of news is going to come from. So, uh, you know, we, we seem to be on the right track. Uh, I got to finish the conversation though, as we always do, Rachel. With you, know, this is great news, and we're excited about this, and, and justifiably excited. Uh, but 
they're telling you that even if you do get the vaccination, uh, you got to still wear the mask. You have to still social distance. You got to still avoid crowds uh, the, until the you know the virus is eradicated. It's still out there, even if you're vaccinated. Uh, you may not get it, but you could spread it to somebody else. Uh, we don't know that yet, but that's a possibility. Exactly, and you know it's so important that as we're getting this exciting news, and you know we're starting to see this light at the end of the tunnel, that we remember that we're still in the tunnel. So you know you still have to think about your loved ones. I mean, I would feel so horrible if I gave you know my grandparents this virus. So even though I'm less likely to have an adverse outcome, it's really important to me to stay home as much as possible, wash my hands, wear my mask, um, you know, do all of those things to try to be a part of the solution and try to help keep other people safe and uh you know i i think that that's something that uh we're hearing a lot of messaging about from you know public health officials and everyone is that uh you know we're getting there but we aren't there yet so you have to keep pushing you got to keep wearing your mask and you know eventually this will be over we are seeing that coming down the pipe but uh you know and as we were just chatting about there's some people that can't access the vaccine so you know as that as that eradication as we're trying to stamp out this um this virus as that's all underway it's really important not to let up in the other measures that we're taking to keep people safe uh, great reporting on this, Rachel. Thanks so much uh, for the great work that you've done on the research on this. And uh, thanks uh, also for the great uh, uh, reporting on this and the time that you've given us today to inform our listeners about this. Uh, information is power, and the more we know about these vaccines and, and why they're happening and what's happening with them, uh, the better off, I think, and the more confidence we're going to have. Uh, let's stay in touch and stay healthy. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Okay, take care. Rachel Gilmore, National Online Journalist with Global News. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to talk about security. And uh, just about any time there are new programs that are put in place, such as a vaccination program, uh, there's always the concern about outsiders hacking into it or stealing information, whatever the case might be. And it's going on all the time, not just uh, because of the COVID vaccines that are being developed right now. U.S. government agencies have been ordered to scour their networks after learning of a cyber espionage campaign that may have been going on for months. In a rare emergency directive, the Department of Homeland Security's cybersecurity arm warned of an unacceptable risk and said U.S. agencies should immediately disconnect or power down any machines running the impacted SolarWinds software. After prominent cybersecurity firm FireEye learned it had been breached, authorities learned that the Treasury and Commerce Departments had been hacked. FireEye did not name specific targets, but said an investigation into the hack of its own network identified a global campaign that had slipped malware into a SolarWinds software update. Cybersecurity experts say the malware gave hackers remote access to victims' networks and a mode that could make everything visible. Former NSA hacker Jake Williams says he suspects there's a number of other agencies that have also been hit. Jennifer King, Washington. So are we vulnerable on this side of the border? And, uh, you know, are we protected with uh, the vaccine rollout program that's going on? I want to get some answers to all of these things. And to that end, we're pleased to welcome to the program David Shipley. David is the uh, AM640 Toronto cybersecurity expert at Sister Station in Toronto. He's also the CEO of uh, Boaster on Security. Uh, David, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Thanks for having me. First and foremost, uh, I will get into the broader section about, uh, about cybersecurity attacks. Uh, but with a program like this that the government's put in place here, our government, the federal government, says upgrades are necessary. They're even admitting the fact that they may not have been ready for this vaccine tracking technology. Uh, it's not as if they didn't know it was coming, David. Why were they dragging their heels on this? 
This is a good question that we're going to have to get more answers on. You know, when we rush IT projects, which are critical now for the functioning of so many things, let alone something as sophisticated and complex as a national distribution of highly sensitive vaccines that need careful control and accounting for um, and delivery, and of course the accounting for Canadians who get this, um, doing that in uh, weeks exponentially increases the risk of project failure. Um, this, you know, as we started talking about the potential for vaccines, we should have been working on the um, business case and the planning and the requirements for uh, a complex vaccine database management system. Governments traditionally move at glacial speed. I think we already know that, just no matter what the program, a vaccination program or any other program. But given the enormity of this pandemic and the, and the, the damage that it was causing, uh, and now we didn't know the vaccine was going to be developed this quickly, but would, I know hindsight's always twenty twenty here, David, but should the government not have been at least designing this and working on a prototype for this sort of security back in March, April, May, around there? Ideally, um, you know, they, they should have um, at least been had a good handle on exactly what they needed. So whether to understand if there were products off the, uh, off the shelf that they could have purchased or if they had to custom build something um, to meet their needs. And, uh, you know, we, we don't have 10 years to procure this system. You know, I mean, the nightmare that is um, procurement on, on our defense side is well known and documented. Um, this... Um, yeah, this is kind of stunning uh, to read the the reports. And, I mean, there's always partisan politics involved, but I think the opposition members who are saying, we didn't see this coming, uh, that's terrifying. Well, let's connect some dots here. Uh, the fact that we know now, again, in hindsight, that uh, that the government probably spent way too much time and energy trying to develop some sort of a Canasano deal with uh, the Chinese uh, about vaccine and distribution and the development of vaccines. Uh, did that put us behind the eight ball? Did, did we lose too much time there? Well, you, you, you wonder, um, either even if they had gone forward with the Canasano vaccine, it still would have needed this IT system. So yeah. there are so many questions we have. It's like this, this seems fairly obvious from an outside um, perspective, yeah, you're going to need something to track this. I mean, UPS needs stuff to track packages. You're going to need stuff to track the vaccine. Uh, <laughs> you know, so how did this ball get dropped? Well, I mean, we're talking about the agencies themselves. Public Health Agency of Canada uh, still classifies this as mission-critical upgrades needed to the existing computer system. That, that doesn't mean we're just a step or two behind. It sounds like they've got some pretty serious concerns, David. Yeah, well, it, it sounds like, you know, it, the ability to actually successfully roll this out and scale it, you know, when we talk about having to uh, vaccinate 38 million Canadians, that's kind of key. And uh, the, the ability to pull this off in short time, if they do successfully, will be a miracle. But I remember, you know, uh, not properly planning things out, not doing proper change management, not training people how to use systems, that's what gave us the Phoenix Nightmare. Um, which, you know, many public servants at the federal level still have scars about. Yeah. Um, it wasn't the tech that was the devil in the details. It was the planning and the rollout of the tech. That's where IT projects go to die. Well, and, you know, the way governments work, and, and that's a question in and of itself, I suppose, I can understand the, the fascination and, and, and the, the focus that a lot of, of the government officials, especially elected representatives, might have on vaccine, vaccine, let's get the vaccine. Uh, but there had to be somebody around that table, David, that would say, whoa, 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 have you guys thought about uh, what we need to do in the meantime? Have you thought about, you know, the, a protocol? Have you thought about developing a, a, an agency like this and, and, and a protocol that's going to be able to help with the distribution of this? That should have been part of the conversation. 
But these were all really great questions for the federal health minister, uh, yeah. because um, those are the answers that I think Canadians are going to be looking for. I mean, this has not been the smoothest communicated transition, you know, in terms of uh, finding out first we didn't have the capacity to build uh, or to make the uh, vaccines here in Canada, and we might have to wait in line. Uh, what? Uh, and then, two, finding out, oh, yeah, we didn't really plan out the uh, vaccine tracking of this. Um, like, these are pretty core. So either they did plan and something went awry, fine, tell us about it, um, or they didn't plan, in which case uh, we got questions. Um, so I think that's the uh, that's the thing. But but just assuming you can just buy something and get it implemented in weeks, uh, as complex as this, uh, you're counting on a miracle. Let's talk about the players involved here. We just mentioned before you joined us here, David, about uh, the concerns about a security breach uh, south of the border. We'll get into that in a little more detail in just a couple of seconds. Uh, but one of the uh, the suppliers, of course, was a corporation called Solar Winds Corporation uh, that was involved in that, and uh, they have a hand in what's happening on this side of the border too. Should that concern us? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, Solar Winds is one of the world's largest supplier of network monitoring tools. They they service 425 of the Fortune 500, as in the 500 biggest companies on the planet. They have 18,000 customers downloaded this malicious software. The Russians had so much access; they had a, a buffet of hacking at their hands that they had to triage and prioritize who exactly they wanted to go after. And that's the only good news I have to offer you, is that because they had to prioritize, maybe some Canadian organizations got lucky. So this was like a mother load for the Russians. I mean, they, when they tapped into this, they just figured, my God, this is a, a wealth of, of information here. They didn't know exactly what to target. They didn't have enough people to work all the opportunity they had. They had this for nine months, and they were sitting inside of the most powerful organizations on the planet. I mean, you know, we're, we're seeing the list be updated uh, every day in the U.S., where now it's gone from Treasury and Commerce to the State Department. We suspect the White House, Homeland Security. Um, so, you know, they were all up in the Americans' business uh, in a big way. Um, and, and, you know, the major security researching firms have said, you know, uh, other major private players in North America were likely impacted. How could that, did we let our guard down? I mean, for something of this enormity to happen, I mean, well, you know, we'll hear about some account get, you know, there's always some corporate uh, espionage that's going on, and we hear almost on a weekly basis, if not a daily basis, about some of those. But government agencies, uh, you'd think, David, that they'd have their act together and figure you, because they know this is coming, and they pretty much even know who's doing it, don't they? Well, the thing is, this is what we call a supply chain vulnerability or third-party risk, and this has been skyrocketing for the last couple of years. The first major sort of example of this was, uh, I if you remember the NotPetya uh, malware campaign that crippled the Ukraine, caused a couple billion dollars in damages to global companies? Mm -hmm. That started because a small little accounting firm in the UK, or the UK, Ukraine, uh, had its software compromised, and because it was one of two firms that you could use to file your taxes in the Ukraine, they were able to hit hundreds of thousands of computers. Um, and that was sort of a wake-up call for some. Um, when it comes to these government agencies, they have large, complex networks. They need tools to manage that. They buy these tools from companies like SolarWinds, and that makes SolarWinds a very attractive target for the Russians. And if you can use that trusted path to push your poison, well, you bypass all those guards at the digital front gate, and you're right in that trusted area. So how do you play defense against something like that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, 
this is the thing about you know how do how do you hold third party firms like you know my firm does a lot of work with a lot of companies across North America, um, and we've got processes in place and audits and all kinds of fun stuff. But the reality is right now when it comes to cyber. We're not, uh, I mean, we're as in globally, all of us, we're far better at hacking things than we are at defending things. And therein lies the problem. And I, I know that, uh, you know, the U.S. got a, a report just a guess, about a week or so ago uh, that identified, you know, Russia, China, and Iran as the, as the three big companies, countries, rather, that are involved in this sort of stuff. Uh, but at the same time, you, when you know it's coming uh, and, and we develop new technologies and new defense mechanisms for for our protection, uh, I, I guess we have to keep in mind that the, the other guys that know about this, too, and as soon as we develop something, they're going to develop a way to get around it. Oh, it's it's cat and mouse, and let's not let's not kid ourselves. We're just as guilty of hacking as others. When oh, sure. Snowden's late leak came out, it uh, they had a hilarious PowerPoint presentation from our spy agency, the equivalent of the NSA. It's called CSE, and uh, we were all up in Brazilian cell phones during tra- trade negotiations. Um, and so, you know, we play the game too. Yeah, but when we do it. It's 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 for the good, right? I mean. Come on. <laughs> Right, I, you're buying yeah, that, yeah, aren't you? You're buying that, aren't you, David? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's it, they're doing their evil. We're doing it. It's it's to protect us, and, and yeah, we get to all that. So, so where do we go from here? I mean, obviously, there's a vulnerability here that, that has been exposed, and uh, the story, of course, that we saw about the big leak here is that the, there's they seem pretty sure that the Russians were involved in this, and not surprisingly, Putin has denied any any in, information about this and said, no, 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 it wasn't us at all. Uh, why do you always pick on us? Uh, usually, because they're the ones that are doing it, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, looks like a Russian bear, walks like a Russian bear, hacks like a Russian bear, uh, probably a Russian bear hacking you. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's interesting. I mean, the question in uh, Latin is key bono, who benefits? And who benefits the most from disrupting the United States right now? Uh, Britain? Canada? Nope. Uh, Russia? China? Absolutely. So, um, you know, where do we go from here? Well, it's, it's, it's global cleanup on aisle nine right now for IT teams who are probably losing their Christmas at major corporations trying to patch and address this and track down all the vulnerabilities. I mean, the timing is terrible. Um, it could have been a hell of a lot worse. If this had been a criminal organization or a terrorist organization, they could have crippled the global economy. And, and I, and I don't want to, I don't want people to think that's just hyperbole, but if you have access to 18,000 uh, companies, some of which are the world's biggest, and you could have ransomwared them all or just destroyed their systems, um, which is not without precedent, um, this could have been a nightmare end of 2020, and Russia didn't. This was espionage. I guess we should be grateful for that. And a little bit of a muscle flex, sort of like back in the Cold War when we'd play the game of who could detonate the biggest bomb. Well, this one's a pretty big detonation, and it's a pretty clear warning sign to us. I mean, this is the stuff of James Bond villains, isn't it? You know, we're going to hold the world hostage. And, you know, corporations like SolarWinds or, or FireEye, I mean, you got to figure they're working on something right now to try to, to circumvent the, the, the hack that was happening here. But, uh, you know... I, I, we're not at the point where if they ever wanted to get in, they can get in whenever they... they I'm, I'm hoping we're making it more difficult. The reality is when you talk about firms like uh, FireEye, which is near the top tier of security companies and some of the best out there, if the Russians can take them down, they can take anybody down. Um, and that's a pretty harsh conversation we need to have. We've, been, we've never been more dependent, perhaps overly dependent on technology, uh, than we are today. Um, and we've never been more vulnerable because of it. And we think about, you know, that little brief Google outage, that little hiccup that was yesterday. 
I mean, that caught a lot of people's attention, and its impacts were massive. It was like a uh, a giant, 50-foot giant falling in the woods. You, everyone hears it. And, you know, we had schools that were relying on Google Docs for parents to say, yep, kids come into school and uh, they're healthy, et cetera. And all of a sudden, that whole pandemic process built on Google Docs ground to a halt. Uh, David, great to get your perspective on this. I don't know if you've allayed any of our concerns, but you're, <laughs> you've certainly uh, given us some, some reasons for, for being, uh, I guess, vigilant about what's going on. And hopefully the governments are going to get the messages, too. Thanks so much for this today. You're very welcome. Take care. David Shipley, a cybersecurity expert, of course, CEO of uh, Bursar on Securities. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.